As a physician, when you prescribe a medication, you know, yeah, I wouldn't describe it as on You know, you lower somebody's LDL cholesterol with a statin. It's, it's, you know, you, you, you've done your job, right? But there's nothing exciting about it. Um, yep. When you yep. guide somebody through a lifestyle chain, um, like I saw somebody this morning who came into our program uh, four weeks ago, hemoglobin A1C of 8.4. Um, you know, uh, wasn't on any medications, wasn't particularly paying attention to things. Um, you know, today is A1C is 5.6. And wow, uh, that's he's, rapid. He, it's, it's, it's incredibly rapid, right? Um, and, you know, he's, he, he's lost weight. He's reversed his insulin resistance markers. He's, he, he probably still has a degree of insulin resistance. So, so he's, you know, he's got to stay on the path, obviously. Um, but, you know, that's what's possible, right? If your doctor asks all those questions during every single appointment, what do they even do with all that information? Welcome back to How It's Met, the podcast where we chat with people who are shaping the future of healthcare and health tech. On this podcast, we chat with founders, funders, and occasionally the innovator who shepherds in a whole new era of a way to conduct medicine informed by a patient's previous medical history already being available at the tips of your doctor's fingers. This time around, we rejoin Dr. Brendan Byrne, currently the co-founder and CMO of Lifestyle RX. Let's get started. <laughs> it seems like you really enjoyed your time both at TELUS and in the startup world overall. And I guess a part, first step included, your life has gone in so many different directions after TELUS. And we won't have time to go through all the different steps and projects that you've taken on. But what stops, starts, and stories did you enjoy most about, uh, I guess, during the process of finding your next chapter? Well, so, I mean, when I was chief innovation officer, I, I you know, what was great with that is I got really excited about medicine again, because um, there's all these wonderful things that are happening. I didn't see that from, like, I was still practicing a day a week, but I was practicing at, a, at, a, at the local walking clinic. So, you know, you don't really see, it doesn't feel very exciting from the day-to-day -day there. Um, so I, I started getting the itch that I wanted to start something again. And, and, uh, when we were on our sabbatical, my wife and I had, had really talked about, well, if you, if you could build a clinic, you know, if you could do anything and build a clinic, what would you build? Like, what would it look like? And what would it be like? And we came up with what we built with wellness garage, which, which was, you know, it would be lifestyle medicine. And, and initially I thought it'd be lifestyle medicine using precision you know, health tools, so genomics and, you know, molecular medicine, uh, and it would be very personalized and, you know, the space would look like a gym and <laughs> you'd have a plant-based cafe and you'd have a meditation space. You'd put front and center that the drivers of health would be kind of part of the experience. And so we visualized that kind of when we were on sabbatical and then it just kept growing and that I have to do this when I was doing the innovation work. And, and I, you know, part of it is you're talking to so many, you know, startup founders and you just, it's infectious, right? So, okay, you know, let's, let's do this. Um, and, and we set out to do it and, and we, we kept it kind of, in a lot of ways, we kept it, the vision a bit too large and, and not focused enough. Uh, but part of that was to learn, right. And, and, cause I, I kind of also thought, you know, it could be an incubator for something else. And, and it gave me, you know, so I, I got back into practice and, and, and I very quickly realized that um, I didn't need the molecular medicine tools and the genomics uh, as much as, you know, just a tape measure and a waist circumference would tell me 
you know, what's happening. Metabolic health is a disaster in, you know, in North America. Uh, it's a disaster really in the world now. Um, one, yeah. One out of three Canadians are, are diabetic or pre-diabetic. So it's, 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 it's astounding. And, um, and probably 70% have insulin resistance. If you, if you actually look, you know, beyond kind of just glycemic control. So that became apparent to me and, um, and, you know, but it, it, it took us a while to develop an approach and we, we worked, we had health coaches and, and dietitians and exercise physiologists, physicians, and I was a psychologist. And, and so, you know, kind of a whole team approach and we started to create kind of, you know, what are the, what are the elements, you know, what's the clinical model here? What are the elements of, of change around this? How do you work with other groups? Um, and it was very high touch at, at the beginning. Uh-huh. And then COVID hit. <laughs> and so the, uh, we, we, we had the best family gym during COVID, you know, so for $10,000 a month, we got to have our own family gym, <laughs> the whole space we, we were, we were, we were in there every day, you know, doing our workouts. Yeah, workout. it, was a, yeah it was kind of an expensive membership, but everyone else's gym seemed to be closed, but not ours. <laughs> so no, it, it's, uh. The, the COVID really took the wind out of our sails from kind of these high touch programs. Um, but the, you know, good news, bad news, the, the you know, that was the bad news that the good news was the diabetes program we'd be doing as groups. We, we put it onto Zoom. We also had getting people from all over the province. Um, and I kind of realized, Hey, we could actually do this completely virtually. But if we were going to do virtual care here, we need to. We need to think a little bit more deeply around what virtual care means. It's not just the video connection. Um, you know, it can, it can be synchronous. It can be asynchronous. It can be in, you know, it could be one on one. It can be group. Um, you know, you can have text. You can have, you know, exercise. You can have audio. You can have video. There's all sorts of ways that, you know, once you have a digital relationship with somebody, um, there's all sorts of ways for the, for, for you to build uh, a program. And, and what we started to realize was that we could, you know, uh, through, through building kind of a back end to this program, we could take physician time and, you know, the, pro- cause the problem in lifestyle medicine is, is often, how do you do that in a 10 minute encounter? And, yeah. um, and so we, we created a structure where, um, we can kind of 30 X the physician time, uh, or more by, you know, one kind of amplifying you know, in groups where you have, you know, what you, you spend an hour with 30 people. So yeah, it's only kind of, you know, you know, a, yeah, a couple of minutes per person, but you know, it, it, now that you're in a group, each person gets that hour. So right, right there, you know, you get that, that magnification, right? So, um, so that was really interesting. Um, and then by putting all of the material online from a video perspective, um, you were able to, you know, do your best job explaining something once, and then it gets listened to thousands of times, right? And uh, and then you can build kind of interactive software modules around that. So so that's that kind of took me down a path of, you know, I realized that during COVID that that was possible, but I had a few kind of issues, right? One, you know, um, my coding skills were never great, and they were, <laughs> they were definitely. Uh, <laughs> outdated. I don't think anyone's going to do this in visual basic. So, uh, so, so I, so I needed to, I needed a technical co-founder. Uh, and then the other thing was I, I knew how hard a startup is, right. And I'd got, I'd gone through that. And so I, I, I wanted to find a young CEO that would be, uh, potentially could be, you know, mentored to a great, have a great CEO. So, um, 
you know, power of networking, a couple of guys in, in, in my network that I had met uh, years earlier were, um, you know, initially they started an EMR company when they're 17. And Jason, wow. uh, who's our CEO, he had reached out to me when he was uh, second year at Princeton. And he reached out, he said, hey, I'm at Princeton and I've got an EMR company and I'm taking the year off. And we got, just got accepted to Y Combinator. And so we chatted about this and he, he was thinking about dropping out of Princeton. And I was like, hey, you know, like you're, you're 20 years old, you're at Princeton, you know, that's an amazing experience. Don't, don't, don't drop out of it, right? You know, there'd be lots of companies to start. Um, I think a lot of people probably told him that. <laughs> so he, he, he finished his, his degree. Um, their company was pretty successful, um, but pretty localized. So it didn't grow as big as, as Wolf did. Um, but they, they got an offer to sell it last year. Uh, and, uh, and, and so we approached there kind of right after that, you know, they got the offer and, and he said, Hey, what are you doing? And so I told him about, you know, this, this concept of, uh, of building this full, full, full stack virtual care platform for one clinical problem. And that clinical problem is the most massive clinical problem faced in our society. So it's not like it's a, not a scale issue here. Um, and it is really around kind of reversing insulin resistance and, and tackling type two diabetes at scale. And so that was the genesis of lifestyle RX. So, um, so really kind of, you know, that the silver lining of COVID for us was that we found this, um, we found this approach that we realized could work. Um, it needed a heck of a lot more capabilities than, than, than we had at the time. And that's why we started the new company around this. Mm -hmm. What are your favorite stories that have come out of Lifestyle RX so far? Because virtual care had its own horror stories as well as stories of people receiving care when they otherwise wouldn't be able to. So there must, have, must, must be some, both positive and negative, with your experiences adapting to virtual care. So, um, so I mean, now virtual care is actually, it's a, it's, it's a delight. Um, I, I think in the, in the, early stage, you know, uh, of the pandemic, it, it was, you know, you just couldn't get connections with people and, yeah. and everybody had, to, had a skill set to learn. Um, you know, what's phenomenal is, is, you know, we've got people in their eighties in our program that, um, that ma masters, you know, zoom and, and, and all our online components and everything else. Um, so, you know, the, the, the technology no longer gets in the way, but that was kind of, I think at the beginning, everyone was kind of like, oh my goodness, this this technology, um, some of it's just not ready for prime time, and, but, but by and large, um, you know, what, what's been delightful with it is just, you know, when we do these groups, we have people from all over the province in, in the groups. So, um, these are people in places that there's no way that they get this, this care, right? There's, there's, you know, there's no way that, uh, little community could support a program like this. Um, but we do it across the province. Uh, it's open for everybody. So that's, that's been amazing. Um, the other thing that we just, you know, we see is just the, these transformations that people achieve, um, are awe inspiring, right? As, as a physician, when you prescribe a medication, you know, yeah, I wouldn't describe it as awe inspiring. You know, you lower somebody's LDL cholesterol with a statin. It's, it's, you know, you, you, you've done your job, right? But there's nothing exciting about it. Um, yep. when you yep. got somebody through a lifestyle chain, um, like I saw somebody this morning who came into our program, uh, well, weeks ago, hemoglobin A1C of 8.4, um, you know, uh, wasn't on any medications, wasn't particularly paying attention to things. Um, you know, today is A1C is 5.6. And, wow. uh, That's he's, he, 
it's 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 incredibly rapid, right? Um, and you know, he's he he's lost weight. He's reversed his insulin resistance markers. He's he he probably still has a degree of insulin resistance. So so he's you know he's got to stay on the path, obviously. Um, but you know that's what's possible, right? Um, you know he's he's obviously kind of one of the uh, you know a super responder, perhaps. Um, but you know you get other stories like you know we we had a person who who was uh, BMI of forty seven, so um, you know pretty large lady who who uh, was really debilitated by her weight and her her osteoarthritis. And so when you're talking around what does she do for exercise, she's like, you know, I can't do anything, right? And we started to talk about well, what would be the minimum that she could do. And she said, well, I've got a courtyard and I think I could walk around the courtyard. I said, well, that's great. Well, you know, you think you can do that every day? And she said, well, I'll, I'll try. And uh, and off she went and there were a whole bunch of other components, obviously around Christian and other aspects to our program, began to lose weight, blood sugars began to improve, um, but she kind of stuck with that walking around the courtyard and that walking around the courtyard became, you know, 10 minutes, became 15 minutes, became a 30 minute walk. And at the 12 week point, I saw her, her BMI drop from 47 to 40, the massive drop in weight. Um, and, but the thing that excited me the most was she signed up for a program at the local community center to learn about lifting weights, right? Because she, she, yeah, week 11 in our program is around resistance training. So this is a person that couldn't exercise at the beginning. And by the end of the program, she's signing up for a program at the community center. And, and also saying, you know, like one of the things she said to me, she I never imagined myself as somebody that would go to a gym. And now I'm excited about it. So clearly kind of, you know, the transformation of how she saw herself during that program was, was awesome. So you know, that's the kind of thing as a practitioner that gets, you, you know, it's just exciting, right? Like you, 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 you feel really good about that. And, um, but it's not because you did it. It's, it's more like you're, you're the Sherpa, right? Yeah. You know, they climb the mountain and you kind of just help point the, point the way for them. And, and that's, that's the most gratifying part about doing what we're doing. And, and our job, you know, running Lifestyle RX is, is we're going to be relentless and methodical about insulin resistance, you know, so, so some people it'll come easily. Some people it'll be harder and we'll have to work in different ways. Um, but we're going to be relentless about trying to find a path for them. Right. Um, and, and my belief is, is that if you took all the people, uh, you know, out there being diagnosed with type two diabetes right now, uh, probably 50 or 60% of those people remission is, is a very real possibility. And, um, and it should be the choice. It should be, you know, that should be the, the, the path that they're, you know, that they're directed towards. You say you're relentless, but what does relentless actually look like? I think one of the main things you've done is capture that uh, groupthink for the positive to an extent by enabling communities to learn about lifestyle changes to fix or manage insulin resistance together. But what does that relentless focus on insulin resistance actually look like in person and how do you make this into a modular or how do you make this to a business model yeah so so for first of all uh, part of being relentless with it is understanding what works or doesn't work right and yeah. so um so you know when we uh just having a small example not even clinical but when we first started we you know people onboard themselves and we wrote this really brilliant onboarding software that they could onboard directly into a, into a physician consultation. 
Um, but her no-show rate was horrendous. And so we, we put a patient success uh, team together so that every patient would come through and the same onboarding, but it would land them with a patient success person who would explain the program kind of, you know, so we, we, I mean, we had lots of stuff explaining it, but we just had a person explaining it. Now we, you know, no shows are almost unheard of, right? Like we just don't, people, people come, they're ready to go and they, they've done, done the work. Um, so, so there are little changes that you, you make as you go, you just, you just have to have the data. And so you just start to see this works, this doesn't work. And, and, and you need to be relentless about trying to improve us, right? So, you know, this works, can it work 5% better? Can it work 10% better? But the same thing can be applied at the clinical level. So one of the things that, that we've realized with type two diabetes is there are, well, the, you know, it's, it's emerging that there are five different subtypes of type two diabetes. And so this came out of Sweden in around 2018. Uh, it's been replicated in, I think, nine or 10 other studies in different populations. And those subtypes had very different trajectories. And so understanding this, you know, what subtype somebody is also helps us understand, well, what, what's the likelihood of remission for this person? And so if they're an insulin, you know, if they have a, an insulin deficiency subtype, um, the chance of remission is, is, is actually really low and we need to reframe this for them so that they're not feeling like, you know, there's no point doing what, 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 what we're going to ask them to do. Um, but, but the other subtypes there, there are differences in terms of, you know, uh, what we need to do from an exercise standpoint, what we need to do from a, a medication standpoint. And so the back end of what we're building, um, I mean, there's a, there's, there's kind of a reason why it's founded by EMR guys, because, um, we're building a bespoke EMR with the data analytics capability that we can slice and dice our, our, our data to understand what, what works and what doesn't work on a clinical level. And then, uh, what works or doesn't work in terms of our curriculum. And so we can keep improving it to get kind of that 5% better, 1% better, whatever it takes. Um, and that's what I mean by, by being relentless. It's, it's just constantly, you know, uh, measuring what you're doing and then coming up with ways to make it work better. And, um, and we know, you know, for, for us, a big, a big, if we, if we have people engaged, you know, if they're engaged in our program, they do really well. So, okay, how do we get people engaged? What, what excites people? What do we need to do? Um, and, and there you, you've got to be creative. You've got to try different things. And, and, and the beautiful part about digital is you can, you can test stuff. You can, you can test, you know, one approach versus another approach and you can, you can use data to actually guide which, which you stick with. And, and, and so we're applying a lot of that to, to what we're doing all with the aim of trying to help more people reverse the insulin resistance that allows them to achieve diabetes remission. So, I mean, it seems like the through line of everything that you've done throughout your career has been to turn medical practices from paper charts and pagers, never mind pagers, paper charts, uh, into EMRs where you can slice and dice the data to achieve better health outcomes for the patients. And you've gotten to where you want to be, at least from my perception. Do you feel like you've succeeded to some extent in your life goal of being able to work with the massive amounts of medical information that are available in clinics now? We're, we're getting there, right? So, you know, when we were at Wolf, we had a tagline, turning information into better health outcomes. Yeah. And, uh, and when I went to TELUS, uh, TELUS actually adopted that 
that uh, that tagline for Tell Us Help uh, for the time is here. So, um, and, and and really, that is the theme, right? It's it's straight, yeah, the information to better health outcomes. One of the things I learned along the way was, you know, what was disappointing in the EMR journey was, um, you know, for the most part, I think EMRs unfortunately have created more moral distress for physicians than they have created kind of joy or benefit. Um, and part of that is, is just that it's harder to use an EMR than it is to use a paper and pen. And by and large, most physicians are recording notes in a very inefficient manner into a record system that they will almost never access again and nobody will look at that note again and so that's distressing right and at the same time you know you're having to fill out more and more forms and the forms are you know they're they're always awkward in the electronic space they're they're not very you know you know you don't you don't see medical forms being done through docusign or other kind of streamlined approaches right um you know literally you get something faxed from the pharmacy that in some EMRs, you, you, you have to print, sign, scan, and send back. Like, oh my God, right? So, um, the back so the, tag. yeah, so, so much, you know, so unfortunately we, we, we turned information into, you know, mostly digital, albeit some facts, but mostly digital information. But, um, but there was this gap between better health outcomes. One of the things I learned from when we did the innovation work was, uh, there's a, there's a, 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 a Harvard business school prof, Clayton Christensen, who's got this framework, the jobs to be done framework. And this whole thing is that you, you, you essentially hire a tool for a job. Like nobody really wants a drill and what you want is a quarter inch hole. So you kind of hire, you use a drill, make a quarter inch hole. And in health, I thought that was really interesting to think about these discrete health jobs, but not from the, like, you know, everything in healthcare, unfortunately is, is practitioner centric. So if you go from a patient-centric standpoint, let's look at the health jobs that a person has. So a person with type 2 diabetes has this health job of, I want to live the healthiest possible way so that my diabetes doesn't get worse and maybe it gets better, right? That's a discrete health job. So guess what? If you build a company or an approach around that one health job, um, it's incredibly powerful because you're not trying to, like, you're, you're not trying to build something for their knee pain. You're not trying to build something for their, the, you know, the, the rash on their back. Um, you're building something for this one health job. And, and that's what we've, we, we've really tried to do here. Now, granted that the health job we picked is, is, it's a big lunch, right? And so, uh, it's got a lot of scope to it, but, um, but I think the chances of being successful within a health job of doing that are, are really high. It, it's a manageable amount. Whereas, you know, when you're building an EMR for every possible clinical usage out there, um, the tool becomes, it, it becomes a bit like a Swiss army knife for, you know, you're, you're, you're going to use a Swiss army knife as a mechanic. Not, not really. Right. Yeah. You know, as a mechanic, you have custom tools for the, the, the job that you're going to do. And, 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 that, and I feel like that's kind of one of the things that, uh, that, you know, we've got to see within, you know, EMR spaces, you know, really you know, tackle it around the health job and build the software around that health job. Uh, and ultimately there, there needs to be some interoperability around the data so that you can move data in and out of different software uh, that are fit for purpose for that particular health job. Mm -hmm. I agree that the generalist EMR can be quite difficult to navigate, to manage multiple different health conditions because there's so much that you need to do, which leads to cognitive overload. 
But I can't help but think that there's a bit of irony there because at the beginning of this conversation, you said that you love being a generalist, but you're creating a specialty software and you're actually just building yourself into a niche of lifestyle and metabolic medicine that in itself is not very generalist. Well, so uh, look at the name Lifestyle RX. Um, it's, it's a general name, right? And so fair. Um, think how many clinical practice guidelines uh, start with the, you know, the first lifestyle modification, right? Fair enough. Uh, you know, we, we've just picked the biggest health job amongst them all. We have the feeling it'll be a life's work just tackling that one health job. That being said, the infrastructure that we're building can be applied to um, countless other health jobs out there. And so, you know, you could, you could easily see a Lifestyle RX program for cardiovascular health. Um, or for fatty liver or, uh, you know, or for depression for that matter. Right. So, you know, there, there are a lot of different other possibilities for, for the stack that we're building. Um, but we're, we're, we're really choosing to, to build it out completely on, on, on one health job, uh, in, in order to understand kind of the, the that full potential. Mm -hmm. I mean, it makes sense. Metabolic health is a big market and you do need a beachhead to land on, but I mean, you've done amazing work with so many different companies, so many different initiatives so far that you've been recruited on to the boards of different companies that do specific health jobs, such as Life Labs. So for those of the listeners who may, for example, have had a recent exit or looking at that as the next step in their career trajectory, what does being on the board instead of being on I guess the office side on the executives actually look like and feel like when you've operated successfully before, you know, I'm still learning that, <laughs> um, you know, most of my board experience prior to this has been on, on, uh, startup boards, And then I I've done a fair bit of, you know, uh, charitable kind of work, you know, working on, um, you know, different you know, charities board and I've worked on, um, some public boards, but, um, but from a public, you know, from a public company or from a, well, Life Labs isn't a public company, but they're, uh, you know, from a larger company perspective, um, it's, it's different, right? And, and you're there, um, you're there to, to help advise and, and you're there to, um, kind of really help be, be sure that the company's doing, doing the right things and not missing things. And, um, with Life Labs, it was really interesting because, um, you know, there's a, there's a real kind of challenge where um, there's so much innovation coming in the uh, diagnostic space, kind of either personal diagnostics or point of care diagnostics or just different ways to be able to measure things. Um, and then there's kind of the utility grade diagnostics that Life Labs does where, you know, if you're seeing a patient, you expect that, you know, that complete bug panel to be back, you know, this afternoon, right? And, and, you know, and, and the patient go to the lab and it's got a, you know, all the logistics associated with it, but you have got that to work like a utility, right? Like, and so, so on one hand, they've got to be operationally incredibly sound to be able to operate this utility like function. On the other hand, there's all this innovation coming. And so that really intrigued me. Um, and, and mainly I think from the work I'd done as chief innovation officer at TELUS, it's like, how do those, those, those great innovative ideas that are out there, how do they pan out? Um, and, and which ones will be disruptive to that core business that you're trying to run and that you need to get ahead of and which ones are going to be distractions. And, 
so that's kind of what I've been interested in in there. And um, yeah, I'm just you know I'm still kind of uh, learning to yeah how how to have an impact uh, you know with them and uh, um, and and you know it, it's hard for people. I think it's hard for people like me to be on boards just in, in that, like, yeah, I, I, I tend to want to always do stuff. Um, and, and physicians are really, yeah. I mean, as physicians, we're one of our challenges is when we form judgments really quickly, like we get impression. Yeah. I think like, what, what are we designed to do? Anchored. We're, yeah. We're, we're basically, okay, let's take the information at hand and, uh, process that and come up with it. Yeah. And then, and let's do something. And, um, at, at, at the board level, you know, that's not really the way you should function. You know, you, you, you need to be taking a long-term view. You need to be looking at all aspects. You need to be contributing from your perspective, but understanding that there are, you know, and a pro- good board has all these multiple perspectives. And that's the whole point of a board is to bring in those perspectives. So, so you kind of realize that, you know, uh, I mean, my job in Life Labs for is, you know, physician perspective, innovation perspectives, um, you know, and bringing that in. Um, but you know, there are other perspectives that, um, that, that, that may not gel with that. And, and, you know, ultimately management runs the company. It's an interesting transition that way, but uh, I, I'm enjoying it. They're, they're a great group of people and, um, really, really, uh, impressed with what I've seen there. That's awesome. Before we close off, uh, I always give this opportunity for guests to, uh, plug something and I'm pretty sure you're going to plug something about Lifestyle RX. So you got the floor. All right. All right. So a um, couple of things, I guess, is is obviously one there. Is anybody out there with type 2 diabetes or insulin resistance, so pre-diabetes or metabolic syndrome, kind of any, any of the related uh, conditions um, that is looking for help, um, you know, check our website out, lifestylerx.io. Um, if there are any practitioners out there that are looking for meaningful practice, um, we are launched in BC. We're launching in Alberta next month. And we're actively recruiting internal medicine uh, docs for Ontario. So um, if you want to get in early on something that I think is going to be uh, really exciting and, you know, I, I really, I think it's going to be a really impactful journey. And uh, please reach out to me and uh, uh, I'd love to connect. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, the best way to support us is to go to your podcast platform, be it Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever you like, and to give us a rating and a recommendation or a comment so that others can best find us. If you can't do that, then we'd really appreciate it if you could share your favorite episode with those that you care about and who you think would find our work interesting. Till next time.